Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and with mercy? Who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So is the Lord. Tonight we're actually talking about the mercy of God that Will read about from Psalm 103. As we're two weeks into this new little mini-series on what God is like, his character, his attributes. Do you remember that we said last week that human beings were made principally to know this God? That's what he made you for. And he's an extroverted God in the sense of uh, he's a God who is inclined towards people, towards his image bearers. He wants to be known. He's a talkative God. He's not one who hides, but he's one who reveals and introduces. And when he introduces himself to us and when he tells us who he is and what he's like, he says that he's merciful. And we've experienced him to be that way as well. So we're going to look at this psalm and three things we're going to zero in on. The first is that propaganda drives paranoia. And you might not see that in the passage, but we'll, we'll see where it is in there in just a second. The second, that paranoia drives us from God. And the third is that mercy draws us back. Let me pray. Father, last week you had us in Isaiah 6 and we heard the angels say of you, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And then tonight we hear David sing about you, that you're merciful. And those two things don't seem to hold together in our heads very well. You're, you're terrifying in your holiness and you're approachable and tender in your mercy. Paul even calls you the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Father, by your spirit, by your kindness, help bring your holiness and your mercy together in our minds and in our hearts and even before our eyes. Show us Jesus again that our confidence might soar in our security in you might bring us peace again. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, according to a public poll that was released last week, 71% of Russians say they approve of the war in Ukraine, which is shocking, unless and until you consider the fact that uh, the media diet that they get and that they hear from morning to night, every day of the week, says some variation of the narrative that Ukraine is filled with Nazis and is an imminent threat to Russia. So if you had a friend in Russia and you said, 
what are y'all doing? This is outrageous. They would say, well, we're not attacking Ukraine. We're attacking the enemies in Ukraine to save Ukraine from them and to save Russia from them. And we would hear that as what it is, propaganda. It's not true. Their perceptions are skewed by what for them is state propaganda, state media. Propaganda is a powerful weapon, and it always has been because it deceives. But, but you think you're believing the truth, and so you get, um, you get allegiant to the truth. You fight for it. You defend it. You dig in, and you say, no, this is true. This is the way it is. And it's easy for us to look at Russians and say, how could y'all believe such absurd lies? But we believe propaganda too, right? Of different varieties, political or social or cultural or spiritual. Propaganda is one of those things that it's easy for me to see you falling for it and impossible for me to see me falling for it, right? That's the danger. You don't know when you're duped. And you go out and you live your life according to what you believe is true. So propaganda has been sowing suspicion and paranoia from day two. Really ever since the serpent crawled into the garden and whispered into the ear of humanity, maybe, maybe God's not as great and necessary as he told you he was. I used to think, till pretty recently, that the moment that evil kind of entered the world and took down humanity and corrupted humanity was when uh, Eve and Adam ate of the fruit. And I think that's wrong. The moment that evil entered into the human race and killed us and took us down and skewed us is the moment they listened to propaganda that got into their ear, then into their heart. Eating the fruit was just the first decision they made in this new view of the world that they had. And it immediately sowed suspicion and paranoia in their hearts, right? That's what, the, that's what Genesis 3 records for us and shows us, as God tells us why we are the way we are. And it skewed our perception of him, and it made us inclined to propaganda, not just vulnerable to it, but inclined to it, and it made us paranoid about him, which is to say this, it, it made us feel like when we're in the presence of God, we need to be on our guard. We need to preserve an escape route in case he turns on us because we're not quite sure that he's not going to turn on us. We need to hedge our bets in the presence of someone like this. That's what the paranoia feels like. I've told you all this before, I just don't remember when, because I mention it pretty frequently, but one of my Professors in seminary was a guy named David Pallison, and he said this pretty much every class. That's why it stuck so deeply in my mind. He would always tell us, uh, human beings are not blank slates. Like, if I rolled in a big old whiteboard up here, that's not the natural state of your mind or your heart. And on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or at Bible studies or uh, when you read your Bible, uh, people like get out a marker and write things about God and you're like okay that's good information I'll file that away and now I know more and then the next week we come and we add a little bit more information to it that's a bad mental image of what our minds are naturally like the better mental image is like one of the whiteboards in the MLC during finals week particularly maybe for an organic chemistry someone in that class where 
Every square inch of that thing is covered up in formulas or principles or diagrams. And then someone comes in the room and starts teaching you. And you're trying to take notes and you're like, where am I going to put it? A little bit up here. There's like three inches up here. I'm going to write really small with this marker. And then down over here, there's a little bit of white space in between this and this. I'm going to write that. The point is, when you go to recall that information, especially if it's something that you need hour by hour just to live your life, uh, does it make sense why it's so hard to remember where it was? Why it gets so lost in the noise? It's our, our minds, ever since Genesis 3 and the fall, are noisy places. And our hearts are restless, distracted places. And they're ripe for propaganda, and they're ripe for paranoia. Psalm 103 suggests, and we're going to get into this in just a second, but Psalm 103 suggests that it's not enough for us to come tonight and open our Bibles and say, I've got great news for y'all. God's merciful. That's not enough, and it's not sufficient. And the reason why is that there's already a ton of stuff in my head and my heart and yours too that is prone to believe otherwise. I was thinking earlier today, uh, when you think about how the, how the Word of God or how the Bible approaches you, um, you might think that it's like a hang glider kind of peacefully moving through the air and it lands on this big wide open field and kind of unpacks its stuff and, you know, gives you its fruit and its insights. No. The Word of God, come, it's, the Bible was only written for fallen, broken people. So the word of God and the way that it encounters you and approaches you is more like special forces in the night parachuting into an active war zone under heavy fire. And the second it hits the ground, it digs in and fights to hold that ground just long enough to do work and to fight the enemy. So what's the noise that's in our heads? Um, I mean, for some of us, it may be that um, I have trouble believing that he's merciful, but for some others of us, we think we understand the mercy of God, and I think maybe this isn't some and then others. It's like all of us share both of these things. We think we understand God's mercy, but we understand the concept of mercy, like receiving what you don't deserve or getting the opposite of what you had coming to you, receiving kindness when you deserved a cold shoulder, we think we know what that is, but maybe we've never received it. Last week, uh, we, we read this Tim Keller quote that said, all you need is need. All you need is nothing to come to God. But he said, most people don't have that. Most people don't have nothing. Um, even the song we sang just alluded to that same thing. I looked down at my hands and all I had was nothing. That's a blessing, but a lot of us have a lot in our hands. The stuff that's going well in our lives, the stuff that we're doing well, the places that we're better than other people or haven't failed yet or aren't messy. And we might confess and ask for mercy, but we're still holding all this righteousness. That's why we talked about last week about Isaiah and Isaiah 6, repenting not just of unrighteousness, but righteousness too. All the stuff that he's still holding on to to say, but I'm still good here. I'm not messy here. I'm still clean here. Either way, whether you find it hard to believe that God could be merciful or whether you actually believe that he is merciful but it's never moved you, never changed you, or warmed you, 
Either way, it produces some variation of paranoia or distance or suspicion between us and God. And here's what I mean. Um, the, ant, the, the reverse of Psalm 103 is what we are, uh, I'm going to read this in just a second. I'm going to reverse some of the things in Psalm 103, and I, I bet you it's going to sound very familiar to your thoughts and fears and anxieties sometimes. Things that are easy for you to slide into believing. You don't have to work to believe these things. Is it easy for you to believe that God is imperfect and failing in his mercy? Here's what I mean. Let me do, I'm just going to kind of go through and reverse some things in this psalm. The opposite of this psalm is what's so easy for us to believe, that God holds grudges against you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's always or often fed up with you? Christian, do you believe that he's either unable to satisfy your inmost desires or spectacularly indifferent to satisfying your desires, the deepest desires of your heart? You ever feel like he's content to leave you in a pit to figure your own way out of the hole you got yourself into? You feel like his commands are exhausting and burdensome, that he's demanding and frugal with his kindness? Is it easy for you to believe that he's short-tempered with your continual screw-ups, miserly with his love, always ready to scold, Fundamentally unfamiliar with how hard obedience is. Like a cell phone battery, his mercy wears down with heavy usage and leaves you with nothing. That's the noise that's in our hearts when we hear things like, let all that I am praise the Lord. Or bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. The Lord is merciful and gracious. We hear those words, and it's written in a tiny little corner with all of that other stuff I just said already on the board. And that's, that's, where, that's where the noise comes from. Elise Fitzpatrick, an author who's been around decades and decades, she said, when we fail to savor God's astonishing mercy towards us, he morphs into some satanic caricature in our minds. We'll find ourselves, once again, trying to earn his goodwill, make up for past miscues. We'll be afraid to try to obey because we know we're bound to fail. I don't know about you. I don't think I'm going out on lend him to say that feels too familiar to me. And I, I, I see some heads nodding. I think it feels familiar to some of you as well. And that means, in a sense, you're normal in the sense of um, you have a lot of company in this room if you're familiar with those feelings. So how can we savor God's astonishing mercies if they get drowned out by other dark suspicions? Um, well, like as I said, thankfully God knows that we're people who are prone to believe propaganda, people who are prone to get paranoid and suspicious and sideways with him, and he knew that the only human beings he was ever revealing himself to in scripture were human beings who were already fallen and broken. So Psalm 103 is a song that a man familiar with failure wrote about a God that he had discovered is unfailing in his mercy, beautifully different than David, not prone to the same bad habits or the same limitations or the same deficits as David. And this is a man who was prone to forget that God is unfailing in his mercies. So, so far we've talked about 
that propaganda drives paranoia. It's the engine that drives it and produces it. And we've seen how paranoia drives us from God. It puts distance between us because you feel, um, I can't be in his presence. I shouldn't be in his presence. I gotta get out of here. His mercy draws us back, overpowers our, feel, our fears and our failures. If you look at David's remembrance of God's mercies towards him, you'll, you'll see his frequent mention of his need for mercy. If you look back down at the passage that you have printed out, anytime you see David rejoicing in God's mercy, that God initiated in love towards David when David had done everything to deserve the opposite. Whenever David talks about God's mercy, you'll see David talk about why he needed it in the first place. These two things go together. Verse three, he forgives all my sins. He heals all my disease. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, which presumes there was provocation or cause for God's anger. He's filled with unfailing love. Verse 9, he will not constantly accuse, which presumes there was reason for accusation. He will not remain angry forever, which presumes there was anger. He does not punish me for all my sins. He does not deal harshly with me as I deserve. Verse 12, he's removed my sins or our sins far from us as far as the east is from the west. Real mercy sees real sin. And it's not real when there's not real sin. You see the correlation and the parallel? Um, the more diminished our sense of our need for mercy, the more diminished our sense of God's mercy. And that's how it's possible to come and sing about his mercy or know about his mercy and talk about his mercy. But again, um, the Richter scale of our heart has never bounced a millimeter because of his mercy. Because we have a diminished sense of our need or a fear of acknowledging our need. I'm more like that than the other. It's a fear of acknowledging my need of God's mercy. But David holds these two things together in a beautiful and freeing way. God's mercy presumes and presupposes your sin. Good news presupposes bad news. This is what we saw last week. I'm not going to go back and kind of rehash what we talked about from Isaiah 6, but this is the, the, the surprising, shocking curveball that we see in that. Isaiah is before the throne of God. He's seeing the angelic host flying around God saying, holy, 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 and they're shielding their eyes because it's like being a mile from the surface of the sun. He is that pure and good and righteous and clean. And Isaiah immediately says what? Does Isaiah start singing holy, holy, holy as well? He can't. The first thing that comes to his mind is, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. You remember Joshua from Zechariah 3 that we went and looked at last week too. He's also before the throne of God, in the presence of God, and the accuser is standing there prosecuting him. And the angel sees Joshua, the devil sees his dirty clothes, his stained garments, his unholiness, and the angel sees it too because the angel says, take off his stained clothes and give him clean garments. Sin and mercy hold together. The way out of our sin is not denying it or diminishing it or rationalizing it or excusing it. It's owning it 
and bringing it to one who is perfect and unfailing in his mercy, one who can deal with it. So God's mercy acknowledges our sin, and then the surprising thing is then he hides our sin, and that's surprising. Um, and, and he hides it well. The metaphor that David uses here, we're going to talk about it in just a second when we end, but he hides it as far as east is from west, as far as the heavens are above the earth. I saw a picture one time of um, a mountain lion. I never knew this about them, and I have no idea how I came across this picture, but it was a picture of a mountain lion that um, apparently one of the things that they do is in times of food scarcity, they will, they'll make kills if they're able, and then they'll bury them to kind of keep them for when they need to actually eat them. But they're notoriously bad at burying their prey. So the picture that I saw was a mountain lion kind of in somebody's front lawn, and it dug kind of a half-hearted hole with like antlers and four legs sticking out and dirt over the carcass of a deer or something. And if you come up to the mountain lion, you're like, hey, what's behind you? He's like, nothing to see here. There's nothing here. It's how we hide our sin. And God always wants to talk about it. And he's always saying, what's behind you? And it's not just to shame you and rub your face in it's because he's like, I can hide that better than you can hide that. Such a surprise of the good news of the gospel. You uncover your sin before God and he covers it back up, but perfectly. So God sees us as we are. He diagnoses us correctly. And he's able to deal decisively with the truest you and even the worst you. This is the way to a true and deep appreciation of his mercy. Um, I'll be brief here too, but we say in Freshman Fellowship, for those of you who've been in it, you've heard this a lot. Um, Romans 5, or sorry, the, the end of Romans 4, Paul's talking about God is both just and the justifier of the unjust, which is to say that the way God saves people is legal. It's by the book. Meticulous and painstaking. Um, there's a difference if you were charged with a crime and you had to go through the whole legal process, there is a difference in going through the legal process and there being a legal, by a judge or a prosecutor, somebody legally expunging your record or dropping the charges, or you serve the time and the law is satisfied. It's like you had a year probation, you did it. No one can accuse you of that crime again. You did the time. That's a big difference from, from you just kind of saying, well, I'm going to get out of town. I'm going to run from these charges and just hope it goes away. Or, as one woman did in Kentucky a few years ago, I read a news article, hacked the county prosecutor's computer system to drop her own charges until her court date showed up and they couldn't find the records and they started digging around and realized she hacked the system and removed her own records. God forgives people in a legal, just way. This is why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Crucifixion was condemnation. It was damnation. It was curse. It was wrath for sin. And Paul says, in Jesus, I've done the time. I had a death sentence, and I did it. Or that doesn't make sense to us, because you're like, how could that make sense? But you're like, you got 10 years in prison, you do the time, the law can't touch you. You're free. You're not the fugitive always looking over your shoulder. Who, are they going to come get me? Is someone going to find out my identity and know what I did? Some of us live that way with God, right? We're fugitives. God justifies in a just way, in a legal way, where you've done the time in Jesus.
when he did the time on your behalf. And there's no looking over our shoulders. There's peace. There's joy. There's freedom. There's getting on with your life and fleeing sin and learning how to love him and learning how to obey and learning how to love other people. Well, this last part I want to talk about is to get practical and talk about um, what happens if we forget this. Everything we've talked about so far is true, whether you remember it or not. Um, Truth is truth. It doesn't depend on you being consciously aware of it for it to be true. It's independent of you. God is independent of our thoughts about God. He is merciful. He is unfailing in his mercy. He delights in being merciful. He loves to be kind. He loves to forgive. And that is true regardless of the degree of my fading in and out awareness of it. What great news. Forgetful people like me. But do you want to remember it more? Don't you think your life would be different if you believed I've done the time? The charges have been dropped because I did the time in Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been condemned in Christ. I've been sentenced in Christ. And I've been vindicated, declared innocent in Christ. Don't you think your life would be different if that was a present front burner awareness every morning? It would be. How do we move towards that? We talk to ourselves. We used to play this game in Philadelphia when we were downtown. Bluetooth are crazy. <laughs> and people would be down around downtown and, you know, have, you'd either see people who were kind of pacing on the street and then you'd turn and see the little earbud and they were like on a business call or something or they were not well. <laughs> we are people, Christians are people, and those who are curious about God as they're working out, could he be this good, could he be this merciful, are people who talk to themselves more and more and more. David is talking to himself. I'll read my version from my Bible. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me. He's saying, soul, get up. Bless the Lord. All that is in me. He's saying, get out of bed. Every part of me, get up. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Mine, don't you forget his benefits, which presumes he's forgetful. David had a pretty memorable encounter with God's mercy. Do you remember it? It was a big deal. Front page news. Forget not your benefits. Bless the Lord of my soul. So we talk to ourselves. That's going on in verse 1 and 2. Do you know how to talk to yourself about the good news of the gospel? Do you know how to remind yourself? Do you know how to rouse your lethargic soul or your lethargic heart, your sleepy heart? Do you know how to rouse it back to action, to wake it up and to talk to it? I struggle with this. I tend to listen to my thoughts as if they're gospel truth until, instead of talking to my thoughts and putting them in their place. Maturity is telling your thoughts where to go. Maturity is telling your heart what to believe. It is passing along the memo that you got from a God who does not lie. And it's saying, while my heart is all screwed up and it's every which way, but this is the truth, heart, and you believe it. That's what David is doing. He is planting seeds of truth, of God's mercy towards sinners in his mind. So that's practical. Talk to yourself. Order your thoughts around. 
Another thing that we can do from this passage is uh, take verse 3 through 10. I mean, you could do more than this, but let's be really practical. Circle verses 3 through 10 and preface those sentences or those verses with, because of Jesus, this is true of me. Or because of Jesus, this is what is offered freely to people who are not in Christ, who do not know Jesus. This gives you a much more expansive invitation of what God is holding out freely for you, not to earn, not to dance around and impress him. That's not mercy, but to give you as you look to his beloved Jesus. Because of Jesus, my sins are forgiven. And pause, maybe that's all you think about tomorrow. That's all you think about. UGA students don't bite off more than you can chew. He redeems me from death. Maybe that's all you think about next week. You will survive death. He doesn't just tolerate me. He has, because of Jesus, he has crowned me with love and tender mercies, plural. Maybe that's all you memorize for the month of April. Until it defeats the propaganda that you're just barely tolerated, not crowned with anything. And on and on and on. He's filled my life with good things and you go looking for the good things he's filled your life with. He's given you righteousness. He is compassionate and merciful. He is slow to angry and you think about that. He's not quick to anger. He doesn't blow off the handle the way I do. I want to conclude lastly by talking to people who might be a little bit more um, like me, and it's not just because I'm talking about me so much tonight, but I've over my life found it particularly difficult to believe this very thing about this very God. I remember the night, I've told you all before, but I remember the night sitting right over there for the first time ever, I felt like I could be honest with God about who I was not. I was not who I should be. I was not who I could have been. I was who I was, and that was a problem. And I remember him giving me ears to hear the gospel and eyes to see it and a heart to love him when I realized, well, it's okay for me to be the way I am if he's the way he is. And it was the first time I was able to believe that he is merciful to sinners. And he drew me to himself out of the paranoia out of the propaganda, into the light. So it's to you, those people that I speak to as we end. You might believe that he's merciful, but not to you. You might say, I agree theologically that God is gracious to sinners. I believe the gospel for other people. But your sensitive soul, weak, doubting, you stand far off from God, analyzing your wayward heart, your wayward soul, or the skepticism that sticks in your mind, and you're in agony sometimes. And I want to call you in from the cold. You're sitting right outside of a banquet hall filled with food, dying of hunger. And this is a God that walks over to the door, and he opens, and he says, hey, there's food in here. And he realizes you're too weak because you haven't eaten in so long, and he carries you in. And he spoon-feeds you. He says his mercy is, everlast is from everlasting to everlasting in verse 17 of this psalm. And that's true even if you believe 
his mercy is fleeting. Listen to him argue with your propaganda. You think his mercy for you is like an old expired check that you found from a grandparent five years ago. The money used to be good, but it's not good today. Man, it would have been good if I had made use of that then, but now it's good for nothing. And he says, my mercy is made new every morning. You think you've out, outsend his mercy with your drifting this year, and he says his mercy endures forever. You think you aren't sincere enough, consistent enough, devoted enough, passionate enough, good enough to warrant his mercy. And he says, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm on board with that. You're not. You're none of those things. But my mercy, Ephesians 2.8, was never, is never payment for your performance, never reward for your sincerity, but a free gift that you didn't work for that I love to give. You think he stares at you indifferently as you beg for mercy, and he says, but I delight in showing mercy. You think his love has or is or will fail you, and he says in this psalm, his love is unfailing. You think you deserve God's judgment and abandonment because of what you've done and left undone. And he says in Ephesians 2, you are by nature deserving of wrath, but because of my great love for you, I who am rich in mercy will make you alive together with Christ, even when you are dead in your transgressions. So Christians in the room, who are you listening to? Propaganda from wherever it comes from? Or this God of unfailing mercy? And my friends who are not Christians, and you know you're not, or friends who don't know where you are with the Lord, the question is the exact same to you. Who are you listening to to tell you what God is like? God? Or you? Or someone else? Take him at his word. This is who he is, and this is how he loves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all of these things, as we said, are true only because of you and only in you, because of you. Father, your mercy is unleashed to us. Because of Jesus, your mercy changes us. Because of Jesus, your mercy embraces us. Lord, I pray that we would look in our hand and see that what we brought is nothing. And we would look at your hand and see you reaching out to pull us up near to you, drawing us back out of paranoia, out of propaganda, and into the light of your mercy. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.